everyone, and um, welcome to this session. It's really good to see all of you here on a Sunday morning. My name's Karen Das, and the session today is called Soundtrack, or Dancing About Architecture. And this session is supported by our friends at Auckland University Press and Victoria University Press. So in this session, we're going to be discussing the slippery and peculiar thing of writing about music. And what we've got today is a really diverse but interesting group of four writers who have each written a piece, especially for this session, about music that has formed the soundtrack to their life's work or to their life. And they're going to read their piece, and then we're going to have a bit of a discussion. So I'm going to introduce you to our authors. So here we have Nick Lowe, who's a Melbourne-based writer, and his first book, Arms Race, was published by Text Publishing. And you're also an artist, aren't you? I am, yes. Yeah. And we have Chris Teese. Chris is a Wellington-based writer who has written two collections of poetry, and his most recent collection is um, He's So Mask, published by Auckland University Press. And we have Philip Hoare. Philip is an English writer, and his books are a really bewitching but compelling kind of complex net of things that kind of free range out into history, natural history, and memoir and biography. And his most recent book is Rising Tide, Falling Star, published by Fourth Estate. And um, he's also written for music publications in the past, NME, Sounds, The Face, Blitz, yep. and ran a little post-punk record label imprint yep. called Operation <laughs> Twilight. digging up things. <laughs> <laughs> digging the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Pip Adam wearing a fabulous Bout of Space t-shirt. Mm. Go Christchurch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pip is a Wellington-based writer, and she has written three books, uh, published by Victoria University Press, and her most recent book, The New Animals, which is sensational, uh, won the Acorn Foundation Prize um, at this year's Occam Book Awards. And if you look at the cover of Pip's book, The New Animals, it's got this amazing collage by the artist um, Carrie Ann Lee, and there's a little image there, and it's a copy of the Face magazine, and it's got Susie Sue on the cover, mm -hmm. and that was the hook for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't disappointed, so yeah. Um, so, Nick, would you like to read your piece right. first? Over to me. Thank you. Kia ora koutou it is good to be back in Christchurch, this is my hometown, born and raised, um, and I'm going to share with you uh, two pieces of music uh, that came to me whilst I lived here. These are the musical influences that I brought with me from Christchurch out into the world, and I'm going to talk to you about how they informed uh, the writing of what is possibly the worst novel in the world, <laughs> my own first novel, oh. a um, failed attempt. I'm going to humiliate myself terribly by actually reading you some short extracts of it, so <laughs> bear with me. On the outskirts of the dusty Australian town of Avoca, there is a tall, gabled, weatherboard house that was once the district's first hotel. It sits empty at the edge of a floodplain. The exterior paint has mostly peeled off. It's been underwater <clears throat> many times. The interior is exquisitely spartan. There are possums living in the whitewashed walls, and the rough floorboards seem to be flooded with a perpetual honey-coloured light. 
In the dry midsummer of 2007, I sat at a desk in the upstairs sunroom and began to write. I'd come to undertake my first writer's residency at the Evoca Project, run by artist Lyndall Jones. <clears throat> For a month or more, I had the place almost entirely to myself. By day, I wrote to the drone of lawnmowers and flies, and by night, I wrote to the chirruping of frogs and the skittering of moths battering themselves to death against the glass, but thick silence lay beyond. Each keystroke echoed in that empty room. Avoca was a quiet and peaceful place, but I wasn't there to write a quiet and peaceful book. My novel was about murders, autopsies, anti-Chinese race riots, the rise of Nazi Germany, you know, just some light fare. Its unlikely plot, though based loosely on a true story, centered around an entire Goldfields town who ended up murdered and their bodies packed into crates and stored in a university vault, which actually sort of happened. But anyway, that's another story. The book was dark, the pace was furious, and there I was in paradise making apple crumble on the wood-fired stove and doing yoga on the balcony at dawn. What did I need to change the mood? Music, of course. I'm the black sheep of a musical family. Both my father and my younger brother have been professional jazz musicians in their time. And when I was growing up, uh, my dad's 12-piece free jazz combo would rehearse in the living room. And my claim to fame as a baby was the ability to sleep through drum solos. <laughs> uh, and it gave me a very high threshold for noise and a, a deep love of the musical fringe. And it also made me a terrible music snob. But then, as a teenager, I discovered bass music here in Christchurch, one of the homes of bass music around the world. Jungle, drum and bass, dubstep, techno. I spent every weekend on the dance floor, not so much listening to music as being animated like a puppet on strings. Off the dance floor, that same music's dark energy propelled me through all-night essay binges at the University of Canterbury essay, uh, uh, computer labs, which was how in Evoca, I ended up listening to two albums on repeat for two months, <laughs> which, as you will see, was a terrible idea. The first album was a single long mix called Tectonic Plates Volume 2, put together by a man nicknamed Pinch. And with music of this kind, you're not so much listening as jacking your nervous system into a new source of power. It's a grim, visceral sound with the relentlessness of some huge, unstoppable machine. And to me, it transmits something of the dark energy of modern cities themselves. And I had hoped to channel some of that into the novel that I was writing. I'd also hoped to disconnect my rational mind. I'd jam on the headphones and I would sit late into the night, bouncing in my chair, snapping my neck to the beat and churning out whatever thoughts entered my head. The music, Sounds a little something like this. Just wait for it.
Can you imagine this for two months? <laughs> you get the idea. The second album on high rotation was something a little bit different. It was an album called Soul Song from the free jazz legend Archie Shep. And I sat there in the grip of his high wailing tenor sax. His playing was reedy and frantic, a sound and an emotion operating at the edge of collapse. In particular, I was transported by the long improvisation entitled Mama Rose. Shep's playing on it is virtuoso and raw, perfect and awful. There's a driving bluesy structure from the rhythm section underneath that keeps the world from disintegrating, but there are times when you wish that world would simply collapse. And that sounds a little something like this. Halfway through the piece, Shep takes the saxophone away from his mouth and he speaks and he wails and he sings everything directed to a woman named Mama Rose, perhaps his grandmother, perhaps his mother lying dead. And the flies that hover over your yellow encrusted eyes, well, maybe they're the centurions of Hannibal, watching you lying there, your simmering hopes and jellied corpse turned up to the sky like a putrefying Congolese after the Americans have come to help. At first, I listened to these lyrics closely. They're mad, hallucinatory. But after further listens, after the first week, the second week, the third week, the fourth week, the details faded until I was simply mainlining that wild energy by putting the headphones on. Now what happens when you consume a steady diet of this music and live in a fictional universe of your own creation for two months? You can probably guess. When I had to go outside to buy food, I could barely string a sentence together. <laughs> My voice came out in a whispery croak. When I talked to the local shopkeeper, I pointed at a pack of frozen sausages. <laughs> What's in them? <laughs> and he looked at me like I was insane, and his booming reply made me jump. Meat. <laughs> <laughs> so, shopping was a mess, but what about the writing? I had a ball, it was hugely productive. I wrote 45,000 words. And on the plus side, listening to two albums on rotation, I got a real consistency of tone. <laughs> and on the downside, 
I got a real consistency of tone. <laughs> <laughs> and while some of that dark relentlessness I wanted did into the story, I was far too immature a writer to properly harness it. The result was an embarrassing mess. Here is the climax of possibly the worst sex scene ever written. It's set in the basement of a nightclub in 1936. And you just keep those two albums in your mind. Keep that sound in your mind as you listen to this. Underground sound and steam power this world and grinding they groan under the weight of the city and the light that sears his brain is a sudden dark wind that punches open the door but the bass player's thumb pushes into the small of his back guiding him deeper into the labyrinth. The steps of the dancers flickering across your skin and the talk, the talk and the back corners that flow electric between men is a current of knowledge that pulls their lips together to seal off the noise. The arcane puppetry of tongues that escapes with rasping heat as they clench and moan, pushing sound and steam as the bass player booms and the light grows heavy and all clench grinds the fuck and the talk as light dances and tight electricity and it wells and it swarms and the labyrinth it bursts. God, the things young men write. <laughs> I won't inflict any more of this novel on you. It's never been published, it never will be published, I'm very happy to say. Every writer has something like this in their bottom drawer. It's like when you're making pancakes. It's the first pancake. <laughs> the book was so abstract and so dreamlike, it was near impossible to read. But I do still live in that same way that I lived in Avoca. I do live in the bush. I do write all day and a fair bit of the night. I cook good food and I listen to music all the time. It gives me great pleasure. But the one thing that has changed is that I listen to more than two albums. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. That was great. Chris, would you like to read your piece? Um, this piece is called uh, Pleasure With No Boundaries. <clears throat> Sometimes the right album enters your life at the right time. There's an album that came into my life by virtue of being compared to the work of one of my favorite artists, even though the two are seen as existing in very separate creative spheres. The album opens with sonic tension, an unsettling swell of feedback that wouldn't be out of place in a horror film, buoyed by a claustrophobic din. The artist talk-sings the opening verse with a tone somewhere between possession and ecstasy. I think we're going to hear a clip of it now. Strap my very own self in this narrow mind mind No more space in a slither What a gift for a deep breath inside Where the chaos has me captive Where there's no exit sign Where it fuels stupid fire with these feelings of mine They're lines about searching for answers and relief Sung with palpable desperation The song's chorus is a plea Help me, this time I went too far the rest of the album is filled with songs featuring the kind of angsty lyrics that my 15-year-old self thrived on. Some of you might have recognized the singer, but for those of you who didn't, it's Kylie Minogue. <laughs> That's right, of Neighbours and the Locomotion, princess of pop and perennial gay icon, 
For more than 30 years, she's been revered, reviled, and constantly reassessed by critics and the public while forging a long and influential career in the face of ever-shifting musical trends. Kylie's survivor spirit has made her one of the most beloved pop stars of her generation. At the turn of the 21st century, Kylie became synonymous with cutting-edge pop, but it took a lot of reinvention to get to this point. In the 80s, she was cruelly dubbed the singing budgie, and many assumed her career would be a flash in the pan. Her early output is innocuous but legendary. Songs like I Should Be So Lucky and Better The Devil You Know are the perfect distillation of their time, yet timeless. As she entered the mid-90s, she began to exhibit a tendency to shapeshift, with each subsequent release introducing a new version of Kylie Minogue to the world. She's dipped in and out of other genres throughout her career, showing a versatility that she hasn't always been given credit for. In an interview with Channel V in 1998, Kylie talked of her frustration of always needing to explain each of her reinventions to an industry that expected her to stick to her lane. Even back then, Kylie credited her constant shedding of skins as the reason she was still making records. She said, you can't take away the pigeonhole, but what I've managed to do is push my walls quietly to make my space to play in a little bigger. During this time, Kylie released some of the most daring and experimental records. Japanese dance producer Toa Tai enlisted her for his song, GBI, in which she sang in character as a fictional typeface called German Bold Italic. <laughs> and of course, there was Where the Wild Roses Grow, her iconic murder ballad duet with Nick Cave. But it was on one of her own albums that she harnessed this power of musical dress-up to give a voice to her thoughts and insecurities. The lyrics that you just heard uh, are from Kylie's 1998 album, Impossible Princess, the second of two albums released during her time with the independent dance label Deconstruction Records. It's an album considered by many of her fans to be her defining statement as an artist, but it's also one of her least known albums among the general public. When the album was released in Australia and New Zealand in January 1998, I read a review that noted some of its Björkish qualities. This was catnip for a recently converted Björk obsessive like myself, who was on a quest to track down not only everything she had ever released, but other artists that sounded anything remotely like her. With my interest piqued, I sought it out. The so-called Björkish qualities of Impossible Princess are subtle. There are a few songs that borrow from the strings and beats template of Homogenic, and the minimal electronic pulse of the song Say Hey recalls the song Headphones from Björk's 1995 album Post. And like Post, Impossible Princess flits between genres and soundscapes, incorporating jangly guitars, sophisticated dance pop, and trip hop, the genre du jour of the 90s. As well as being sonically daring, Impossible Princess is Kylie's most personal album, a meditation on the many identities she'd assumed up to that point, as well as those projected onto her by others. It's the first album where Kylie co-wrote every track, and the only Kylie album to date with sole writing credits. The music on Impossible Princess is slick and at times edgy, but it's Kylie's musings on identity that spoke to me the most when I first heard it. The Kylie on Impossible Princess is caught between two worlds, what people expect her to be and what she expects of herself. This conflict manifests itself in lyrics about being in limbo and escape. On Dreams, she sings, it's a way of dealing with all the feeling, believe in dreams. I was becoming increasingly more aware of the different personas that I was presenting to my peers and family, 
while also confronting the fact that I might be gay. It was a confusing and frustrating time, so I did what most teenagers did and channeled those feelings into overwrought lyrics and poems while listening to a lot of Alanis Morissette garbage and Radiohead. <laughs> Impossible Princess was therefore a very welcome addition to my music collection and quickly became one of my favorite albums. But it didn't make me the Kylie fan that I am today. There have been many articles written about gay men's obsession with pop music, and although there is no agreed consensus to explain it, it's clear that pop music is, for the most part, a shared language between gay men. Whatever the reason, it's dangerous to engage gay men in a conversation about pop music <laughs> and its pantheon of divas because we have very strong opinions. It's also another of life's chicken or egg questions. Do I like pop music because I'm gay, or did pop music make me gay? <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. We all know it's vaccines that make you gay. <laughs> I once casually dropped Kylie into a conversation with a colleague to hint that I was gay. He was one of the few gay men in our office, and he broke my heart when he told me that he didn't much care for her. Uh. So while not all gay men love Kylie, I fully embrace my own love for her, even if it took some of my own self-discovery to get to this point. When Spinning Around was released in June 2000, her first single after parting ways with Deconstruction, I remember thinking to myself, she's gone crap again. <laughs> Impossible Princess had led me to believe that Kylie had turned a leaf, that she was now on the path to creating experimental, personal, and emotionally complex songs like Too Far, which you heard before, and Drunk. Instead, she was strutting around in gold hot pants, singing about going out dancing and having a good time. Blah. <laughs> Despite only having a cursory knowledge of her pre-deconstruction catalogue, I foolishly viewed it with disdain. I was sceptical about Kylie's trajectory as soap star turned pop star, and I couldn't take her past musical efforts seriously. Kylie has described the moment she realised she was a gay icon in the 1990s, when she was told about a regular Kylie night at a popular Sydney gay bar. And despite being a beacon for gay men, Kylie's music isn't explicitly queer in its content. However, there are recurring themes running through her catalogue that speak to the gay experience, for example, survival and acceptance. Many gay fans saw her own evolution from Girl Next Door to a strong woman owning her sexuality as a mirror to their own lives, and note how they have a particular Kylie album or song that marked their coming out. My dismissal of spinning around and Kylie's return to disco pop did not last long. Perhaps it was insecurity that fueled my disdain, a fear of giving in to something that was so unabashedly camp. I wanted so badly to hate it, but there was something about it that felt right. It's like the first time you realize you might be attracted to the same sex, a thrill that is both exciting and terrifying. Your heart races, your skin prickles. With hindsight, I now realize the answer was staring right at me in its first verse. Threw away my old clothes, got myself a better wardrobe. I got something to say. <laughs> Light Years, the follow-up to Impossible Princess, is arguably Kylie's campus album. An infectious energy radiates from each song, individual mirror balls scattering their dazzling light across a crowded dance floor. I eventually succumbed to its charms. The very serious teenage boy who thought she'd gone crap again became the slightly less serious teenage boy, dancing with wild glee to Your Disco Needs You. 
at his 18th birthday party while friends wondered, what the hell is this song? <laughs> as much as I loved Impossible Princess's introspection, there was something about light years, joy and warmth that spoke to me, that even if I had to keep one facet of myself hidden from the world, I could turn to Kylie to help me escape, and she'd be there, urging me to put on my dancing shoes. I was still years away from coming out to my family and the wider world, but light years and the albums that followed put me on the path to accepting who I am. Although Kylie's 2007 album X fetched songs about her recovery from cancer treatment, the only other album in her catalogue that sits along inside Impossible Princess as a truly personal affair is this year's Golden, which also credits Kylie as a songwriter on every single track. It's also another stylistic left turn, this time into country-infused pop. But the essence of Kylie is still there. The album was written in the wake of her split from fiancé Joshua Sass, and although heartbreak is a recurring theme, there's also that trademark Kylie optimism. Songs sung by a confident woman approaching 50, reckoning with the past and her mortality. The double meaning of the lyric, when I go out, I want to go dancing, could only be sung with a sly wink from a woman who has been through pain and recovery in such a public way. The album's stunning emotional centerpiece is the plaintive ballad, Radio On, on which Kylie sings, I really need a love song to rescue me. I really need a love song that I believe. A stark contrast to the stubborn and headstrong Kylie of 1998, who sang, I need to save me from myself. 20 years on, her pain is focused on something else entirely, but there's a way out. The Kylie of Radio On starts falling for that same old melody, turning to the past to find a way forward. The song closes with a bittersweet resolution that is neither overly optimistic nor resolutely sad. It simply sounds like a woman who has found all she needs. Saving myself with a song, I find the strength to move on. There, in the moment I'm strong, I put the radio on. Singer-songwriter Rufus Wainwright has described Kylie as being the gay shorthand for joy. Kylie has brought much joy into this world, but I've always been aware of the sadness and anger that exists in some of her work. Kylie is a survivor who has built a career on kindness and empathy. In the course of writing this, I've listened to a lot of Kylie, <laughs> and I've realized that she came into my life at just the right time and that her career progression as an artist and the music she produced in my late teens and 20s was exactly what I needed, often matching the emotional highs and lows of my own life. She caught me at my weakest, and she helped me to find my strength. I'm grateful that an artist like Kylie exists in this world, a glittering light on the musical landscape to show young men like me, once confused and broken men like me, that there is a path through the sorrows that inevitably gather around us. With thanks to Kylie, I know that my disco needs me, and it's up to me to be the light that lights up the mirror ball. Thank you. I love that. Your disco needs you. Your disco needs <laughs> Your you. Disco needs you. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Um, Pip, I'd like to invite you up. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And going, oh, this is the long way. Um, oh. Whoops, sorry. Good. Um, just to start off with, um, Nick is going to play us a song, and we're going to listen to all of it. It's about four minutes long, so just have a wee moy if you want. <laughs> if, thanks, Nick.
Let's take a walk along the beach before the tide comes in. You sure missed one hell of a party last night. I was just disappointed, but the rest of the family won't even mention your name. Yeah, I know you didn't mean to let me down last night. Andy, don't keep your distance from me. Andy, don't keep your distance from me. Didn't make it back in time for the birthday boy. I know things can't stay the same year after year. Just take a look at this beach now. There isn't much left of the place we knew when we were kids. But when we used to go diving from the rocks over there. What do you say we go up north and try to catch the sailing races? Can you believe this place? Well, can you? They're making money out of money. They're making buildings out of glass. Their kids look like they stepped out of fashion magazine. It's gonna last. Man gets angry. What can you do? Don't know why I'm telling all this to you. I'm Takapuna Beach. I'm Takapuna Beach. I'm Takapuna Still see you, and I can let myself pretend that you're still around. I turned 28 last night. If you were still alive, you'd be just short of 33. If only you could see your hometown now.
was about 20, we had a friend called Andrew Moore. He made a skateboard magazine called Yeah Bo and played in bands. One night, he was on stage setting up and my boyfriend at the time called out, Andy, don't keep your distance. It was a clever joke, a knowing joke, a cynical joke. It was 1990, Songs from the Front Lawn, which that song comes from, had only come out about a year the year before. I was impressed. I was impressed with my boyfriend for making the joke and for all of us getting it. <laughs> the joke sort of reached out of our orbit a bit. It wasn't an obvious one to make. As I remember, we were probably in someone's basement and Andy's band was loud and destructive and we'd be walking around for days with the dodgy sound mix kind of ringing in our ears. The front lawn, on the other hand, were artists. I didn't always use that word as a compliment and at the time, I felt a certain tension between being impressed with Harry Sinclair and Don McGlashan, they of the short film masterpiece The Lounge Bar and concerts which bordered on performance art. I was torn between this, this sort of, um, like, I'm, I was impressed with them, but at the same time, I had this sort of suspicion of them. Like, who had told them they were allowed to do this in New Zealand? I thought to myself, <laughs> we uh, tied things together with pieces of uh, five by four, and yeah, this is not, this is not what we do. So, um, yeah, we muddled on casually. We don't care. That was sort of our thing in the group that I hung out with. We don't do things ambitiously. Songs from the Front Lawn was experimental and ambitious and clever and polished. Andy was a beautiful song about loss and money. Like the song in itself said, though, at the time, listening to our weighty, loud, painful music, I thought none of this is going to last. I imagined everything would fade, especially I thought the front lawn's deceivingly slight pop song would make no mark on my life at all. Probably the joke is what I thought of more than the song in the intervening years. Maybe the joke kept the song alive in my thoughts. What did we mean making a joke of calling out to a very much alive young man in the words of a song that calls out to a dead young man? At the time, I thought it was because we knew nothing of death, but this is ridiculous. We were soaked in death at the time. Friends were ODing, friends were having car accidents. One person I knew swam too far out from an Eastern Bay beach and never came back. We knew death. Often in those awful years, it felt like we knew nothing but death. So was it a death-defying joke? I wondered, were we laughing in the face of death? Or was it just a recognition that we were all kind of the walking dead, that really it could be over now, or now, or now, and why not call out to the alive as if they were dead? When I came to write a book about money and Auckland, that line about making money out of money came back to me, and the view from North Head. The New Animals is so much about that harbour Takapuna Beach felt like a strange and powerful place to me. We lived out east. The whole of the North Shore was a bit of a mystery, to be quite honest. We would go to Long Bay about twice a year to play in the surf and ride on the Eater miniature train. There was a flying fox there. Takapuna Beach is a flat, light-sanded bay bordered by cliffs and rocks you could walk out on. So I listened to Andy for the first time in years and cried and then listened to it again and again and again. I was so confused. How could such a simple wee pop song bear all this attention? I decided it's because it's a fucking great piece of art. <laughs>
There is so much to learn about art and storytelling in this song. During this time of intensive listening, my kid and I were driving around. They were about eight at the time. And um, Toki said to me, I always start crying before he even starts singing. I've always been jealous of the way musicians get to use wordless noise to create tone. I talked to David Long on Wednesday. Um, he plays slide guitar on that version of Andy that you've just heard. He was in six volts at the time. I was trying to work out what the instruments were on this song. I was saying to him, is that a French horn? And he was saying, it'll be a euphonium, you know, like that sort of thing. And then after talking for a bit, I sort of said to him, why is it so sad? And I didn't mean the lyrics, I meant the music. And then David explained that all the instruments are played in this very naive way. And then the bowed bass comes in and it's kind of devastating. And I realized the specificity of the sadness in this song. It's not just sad. It's innocence visited by tragedy. I think this is something fiction can also do. Pay attention to the particularity of emotion and find the correct order of words to express it in. The instruments are so well chosen in Andy as well. David told me that um, Harry Sinclair is actually playing concertina on it, and I Googled that. Um, a concertina is like a very small accordion, and if you listen really closely, as you do if you listen to one song for a lot of time, which I wouldn't recommend, as Nick has proven, um, but if you listen closely, you can actually hear the valves being pressed in and released, and the way that the bellows are actually breathing almost like lungs. The concertina almost comes into, it almost becomes visceral and like an organ. McGlashan is famously a percussionist, and although there are glockenspiels and blocks and cymbals in the orchestration, all the instruments seem to, have, seem to do percussive work, producing beat as well as melody. I love the way this sort of mimics walking. I always imagine the speaker of this song walking up and down that smooth sanded beach, not sort of sitting looking out in it. It was really helpful when I was writing the walking and swimming parts of the new animals. I realized that I didn't need to keep writing, she is still swimming. Um, I could show it in the rhythm of the language. And then there's the lyrics. Don McGlashan said of this song, this is really about my brother who we lost when I was about 15. It's not really an attempt to create a story too far away from that. This attention to one close event, the genius of the late, casual, easy reveal. If you were still alive, you'd be just short of 33. The repetition of Andy after the line explaining the rest of the family won't even mention your name. The lyrics use the change to, the, to, the change to Auckland as its flashpoint. And we take on that rage for a moment. The rich kids, the buildings made out of glass, only to be cut down by the quotidian and now heavy, heavy, almost throwaway line, if only you could see your hometown now. The lyrical genius of McGlashan is often this reframing of every day, of the everyday, and it never feels fussed over. Everything comes seamlessly out of everything else. There's no grand gesture. Yet, all these years later, I feel like this song still feels like our national anthem of loss. Thank you. Thank you, Pip. Philip, I'd like to invite you up. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. 
January 11th, 2016, a terrific storm blew over the Cape yesterday. This beach house rocked with the wind. The sea surged over its bulkhead. Its timbers shook fit to spring their nails. I still dove in the water, as I do every day of the year. It's the only earthly power to which I yield. Disturbed by the hangover of the storm, I wake at 2 a.m. For some reason, I check my email. Not something I usually do at that ungodly hour. My sister, back in England, told me the news. He's gone. I came here to the end of America to write about him. Now he's deserted me. I go out to walk under the black sky. I feel homesick for him. Then I realize he's lying just down there along this same coast, awaiting his transfer. I take a photograph of an exit sign through a window of the church that looks onto the beach. In the slow shutter release, the red light smears off into the night. At daylight, I walk with Dennis and Dory the dog out to the icy dunes. I break away. Dory follows me down to the shore. She stands there as I write his name in the sand. The waters wash it away. I sing a couple of lines, then I take off my clothes and swim. January 12, 2016, I came back to the Cape to finish my book. The days fall on their knees. Pulling some strings, I'd waited a long time. I realized after 18 years of coming here, of being with its whales and its birds, its water and its otherness, all held out into the Atlantic like a sacrifice, that this is where I was meant to end up, where it all ran out. It's taken me this long to work it out. For years, I stopped listening to music. One, because I lived through punk and ran my own record label and managed bands. I used to know what was hip before it was hip, because we were making it hip. Now I couldn't bear not having that sense of premonition. Two, because a punishing Morrissey gig, aren't they all? <laughs> He came once to a talk I gave and sat at the back, laughing loudly and inappropriately at my jokes. <laughs> Left me with tinnitus. The sea permanently in my ear, like the sound you hear in a shell. It never, it never leaves me. It's why I swim in the ocean. It's the only place I can't hear it. But in my Cape Loft that week after the news, I wake every morning, weep, and then dance. Watch the video on repeat. It seems more like a seance. The blackness around him, the anchor on his cheek, 
the way he talks to me. May 12, 1974. The picture on my bedroom wall pulled from a girl's magazine, the staple holes still ragged in it. He pirouettes in sky blue, eyes shaded the same heavenly color. He's bleached white out of nothingness. His tie is silver foil and spun gold. He's screen printed onto celluloid, an analog angel in platform boots. He mimes the piano with his fingers, then laughs as he walks away. June 25th, 2000. In a muddy field in England, I watch him ripple his fingers from Ibiza to the Norfolk boards. It's a god-awful small affair. His hair is long and mousy blonde. He looks like a portrait by Albrecht Dürer. I didn't know I was saying goodbye. The whole thing was one long, brilliant joke. 27th of April, 2012. I'm working on a catalogue essay for an exhibition of his work in, muse in a museum in London. The curator takes me down into the basement where the conservation work was going on. He opens up a long plywood container with a domed lid. It looks like a casket. Inside is the Pierrot costume he wore. Rigid yet fragile, stuck over with beads and sequins, it almost trembles as I look at it. The white stockings lie in one corner, still grubby with the nuclear beach he'd walked on. The costume is stiff on its legend, hollow, like the shell that a butterfly leaves behind. I reach out to touch it, but I can't make that connection. He'd already gone. I was still waiting. Too soon, too late. May 6, 1976. My last year at school. I wait for the suburban train. I get out the other side and walk into a yawning black cavern. I didn't know it had been a swimming pool in the 1930s. It aches with another darkness, initiate, intimate, violently beautiful. The razored eye screen lifts. And there he is, standing on the stage. Just me and him. Sleek, monochrome, anchored by banks of fluorescent strips a relentless engine of arrogance. He quotes from the Tempest, this Prospero, overlooking the ocean, dredging sound, I'm lost in his circle. What seest thou else in the backward and abysm of time? January 12, 1977, the Roxy Club in Covent Garden the building is now a speedo store. The streets still look like bomb sites. In the queue outside, a boy with bleached blonde hair in a biker jacket asks me for a light. I enter the cellar knowing I'm doing wrong. There are his children on the stage. No going back now. July 6, 1972. Power cuts, miners' strikes, the dead go unburied. The world's dark and bright. I walk the secure, empty streets of suburbia, knowing 
I'll never escape. By day, I wear a brown school blazer. At night, I stand in front of my bedroom mirror. He points to the screen and picks on me. A glittering panther pouring at a guitar, scary and shock-headed. It all begins back then, just now. The storm, the transformation, the sea that raged no more. May 16th, 2018. This morning before dawn, the beach is empty. I wait for the stars to fall. The tide is out, but it will return. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. So, I mean, what a great um, four very different pieces of writing about four very different artists. And it was just so great seeing what you all came up with. But I just wanted to know, with a brief like this, having to write about one artist, how did you all, I mean, that sounds excruciating to me, to pick, it, pick one artist. How did you, how did you do it? Pip? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think um, I've I've been writing about the front lawn <coughs> for about a year. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, and it's uh, yeah, and I just I just started thinking more about that song. That just that song just kept coming up. You know, like it's been a shitty year for loss for me. And you know, like I just mm. sort of keep returning to that song. And yeah, I think. But you're right. It is very hard. And there's also um, that thing where. There's a little bit of a um, temptation to, as an image-making process as well, you know, like, I like to think that people think that I'm cool, and uh, yeah, and so I was thinking, should I choose something more edgy, but yeah, so yeah, that was how I did it. How did you do it? <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I never stopped writing about him, I never stopped, but, that's a long process of sort of trying to come to terms with time, really. It's time, isn't it? So it's that all of us have spoken about music as being a kind of, it's another state which, which, um, which really, uh, it's where you get your identity from. It's completely where you got identity from, and and I think the, the 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 reason why that's powerful is because music is is exists beyond time and space. That it that it's uh, uh, when when they're in the studio making low, um, he asked his producer what a particular piece of equipment did in the studio, and he was told it fucks with the fabric of time. <laughs> <laughs> he was a key artist for you, wasn't he? Mm. You've written yeah, about yeah. him a bit. Yeah. yeah. Really shaped me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we were just talking just now, but I mean, uh, great artists do that because they uh, they reach through and pull you in, um, and they give you so much more than just music. They give you a whole culture, which you know. I'm sure all of us were born in quite nondescript places, mm. in streets <laughs> which had no name, and you know, that's when you're walking down the street. That's what. Powers you really, doesn't it? I think uh, for me, the choice was really about uh, what will get me out of my head, 
I, I overthink things, I over-engineer my writing. And so things that are, I, I'm always drawn to, you know, someone like Archie Shep, who is so emotive and so, I mean, there's, there's enormous skill. There is, there is decades of technical training behind that. But when he is just going, he's just going. And I, I admire and envy that. So I guess I'm trying to steal some of it. You know, that's so interesting to me that you say that because when I think of Archie Shep, I think of him being real kind of headspace music and really internal and quite immersive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting, yeah, there's different ways that it strikes yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I'm, I should reach out from Archie Shep through into some of the other great tenor players who've yeah. kind of taken me to some wild places. I think the, the, the sax for me is because my father's a sax player right. um, and yeah, that was going on in the background or in the very much the foreground <laughs> growing up. So I think probably it also has positive associations for me. Uh, and you know, to this day, if I'm in a house and people are practicing music, mm. I feel good. It's infused your work. It has. Well, it's certainly infused my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How about you, Chris? Um, there was so... I had a long list. Um, yeah. And there were a lot of obvious artists that I could have written about, like Björk or Tori Amos or Peja Harvey, who are like my holy trinity. Um, but I, I think, for me, I really wanted to pick an artist that not, doesn't get talked about in this sort mm -hmm. of way. And pop music is often seen as just a product and so disposable, but you know, there's so much going on under the surface sometimes for, for these artists who, who do write some of their own songs. And, um, you know, we see Kylie dancing on stage, you know, covered in feathers and glitter and sequins. Um, but sometimes, you know, you listen to those songs and it's the heartbreaking. You know, there's so much pain underneath. I like that you picked um, Impossible Princess. That's actually the only Kylie record that I own. <laughs> and I remember when it came out, it was the indie album. It's the it indie album. It was the indie album. one, and yeah. she had Manic Street Preachers um, yep. producing it. Yep. And, but I think there's a little really nice parallel between um, your artist, Chris, and Phillips, in that they're both artists who have mastered the art of reinvention and almost, I think, kind of used music as a kind mm. of convenient platform for their performance and their message. Um, just going beyond just being pop stars. Yep. Would, would you say that's fair? Yeah. Um, and I, I guess Kylie, she's you know, definitely had a lot of reinventions throughout her entire career, but it's, it's never been, she's never done it um, to court controversy. It, it's been from this genuine place of, I just want to try different things. Mm. Whereas someone like Madonna does it, mm. and everyone just thinks it's really calculated. calculated which I don't think it is. I think she, she, Madonna doesn't get credit for being that, um, the, the person who goes out and, and pulls all of this stuff into the mainstream. Some people might have an issue with that, but it means it's opening up people's worlds to, to different types of music and, and culture and experience. Yeah. Philip, mm. I'm just thinking about um, Rising Tide, Fallen mm. Star, and I didn't actually realize that um, your artist was actually still alive yeah. <laughs> when you wrote it. Yeah. And I don't know if anyone here has read it. I really mm. urge you to mm. read it. Mm. Um, that's extraordinary. That it kind of blows me away. Thing. So can you talk yeah. a bit about that? I find it hard to talk about it because right. I'm going to start to cry. But oh, um, because, yeah, because I'd gone to the Cape, Cape Cod yeah. in New England to finish the book. And the book begins with him, and he threads through it. Um, and um, yeah. So I was just finishing it, and... And it's like this extraordinary kind of love letter mm. to Bowie. Mm. Because I'd... My last book I'd had delivered to him personally, 
and uh, and I'd and I'd um, I, it's a lifelong campaign. I, I'm not making that up. I mean, I've just you know, there's various points where I might. I mean, friends of mine have worked with him, and I could have you know, and I but I didn't want to meet him as a fan. You know, I wanted him. I wanted him to ask me. <laughs> So I sent him a various series. I'd never wrote to him, but... So I did part of that. I did one of the catalogue essays in the Bowie Years yeah. show, for the, for the, which was yeah. the Torrent show. And that was... Which he would have read. I know he read. Um, and I know one of my friends talked to him about me. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I was kind of laying these traps so that, you know, that you. I just wanted, I didn't want to do the fan thing, you know, ha yeah. having been, a, you know, um, so, and so the whole idea that this book, anyone who's, I don't have a copy here at the show, but the if you... from our... Yeah, you'll see reviews. when you go outside how deep my old obsession was <laughs> from, you just have to look at it. Um, so, so, yeah, and so that idea of, um, because... Anyone who knows his work, you know, it's, it's like you and Kylie, it's, it speaks to you very personally. And I think it's interesting, because having worked in music for slight, I look for the first sort of third of my life, I worked in music. Um, and, and it's, it's you know, it's as, uh, for a lot of work, it, like bands, you know, I've worked with a lot of bands, and you know, I knew, seen a lot of bands, like all of us. And, and it's a, it's, it, that's, a, uh, that's a compromise. Yes. That you know you, you are compromising because you're having to compromise. You have to work, you know, work with various you know people. But of course, the, his case and Kylie, but although Kylie as well. So, but but when you're a person who are creating, is creating a very strong individual image, everything really hangs on that. So it can hang and it can fall on that too. When you fall, you really fall because it's you. It's not. You know, you can't blame the drummer, <laughs> which everyone usually does. Uh, um, but, um, so, yeah, so I think that's, that's important. Pip, I thought of something when um, you were playing Andy mm. by the front lawn, and it just occurred to me that, you know, I got that CD out of the Hamilton Public Library when I was a teenager, and it was a really key thing. But that was the first time I've ever listened to that in a shared kind of um, yeah. situation, and it felt almost... Uh, this strange kind of intimacy of shared mm. listening. Um, mm. It was quite special. Yeah. But um, music features in the new animals, doesn't it? I mean, there's that thrill when you read a novel and you read recognisable, you know, they, they name your artists and um, the Gordons are in there and Headless Chickens are in there and um, you're representing. Yeah. I really, I really, um, I really had a, I, the, I had a dream that there could be like a, I should have made like a Spotify playlist for the book, which um, everyone's doing. I did one. Oh, you've done I one. I did one for you. Oh, excellent. Thank you. I'll Karen share it does. With you. That would be great. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you always think that you're running a risk because, I mean, music is so personal. Yeah. And like, but I guess there's the headless chickens fashion, you know, there is that fashion link. Um, Auckland. Yeah, Auckland. And also with Black magazine and yeah and yeah, but it, it, I think it's always a risk. But it's really interesting. I was reading um, uh, the Emily Perkins' first um, book of short stories, which I think is called Not Her Real Name. Yep. Not, uh, yeah. Yep. And there's a lot of there's a lot of music in there. But it, it, it's interesting how it ages for a while a piece, but then it doesn't. You know, like mm -hmm. after a yeah. while, it just yeah. It, but I think it's always a decision in fiction because it does break the fictional wall, doesn't it? 
Yeah. And what you're saying, what you're saying about how it's a it's a risk to put it out there publicly to listen to music in a context like this. Mm. But I think that's actually the the strength of it because I think we we're living in the era of personal music, right? Mm. Like everyone's yeah. plugged mm. into headphones. You've got this many people on public transport, and you are all listening to something different. Mm. Um, so that moment of listening to something, and we've you know we've all talked about the emotions that music evokes in us. So to experience those emotions collectively. Uh, I think is really wonderful, and especially when it's a piece like Andy, which I think so many of us here have memories of. Um, I remember the tape of the front lawn that mm. mum and dad had and having that on repeat. And uh, I've spent most of the last <clears throat> four years here in New Zealand working on my current book. Mm. And uh, my car, so I'm, I'm writing about the Southern Alps. I'm in the car driving to the start or end of uh, climbing trips all the time, and my car has a CD player in it. And I found a copy of The Front Lawn in a in an op shop, and so that has just been back in my car on repeat for the last three or four years. So I love that <laughs> we got to listen to it together. Do you find um, having a CD player only in your car kind of um, shapes and determines Massively. what kind of music you're, and it's in a really, if you're at home and you've got records only? It's, mm. it's in a really good way because it, it, there's something about being forced to listen to something yeah. that actually is a really positive experience. You engage with it. Well, in the it. age of endless streaming uh, as well, you know, life is just one long playlist that spills off one thing to the other thing to the other thing. But when a CD costs, you know, a fair chunk of your weeks, yeah, like a lot of money. So you're not, you're not just, buy, you know, on Spotify you can listen to, you know, 10, 12, 15 yeah. albums a day, yeah, whatever. Like Whereas, yeah. yeah, one album on repeat, like you just you go deep with it. And I, when I was in high school, we, we were allowed to take um, like discmans. Sorry. Sorry, I went through the Walkman phase as well. But I had, I had a discman, yeah. and we were allowed to take it to like was like um, study period or whatever it is, where you just sit oh, in the yeah. room and you can just do whatever you, you need to do. But I remember because you got those wallets that would only hold 12 oh, yeah. discs. That's yeah. right. So yeah. every Did morning you'd be like, what do I want to listen to today? <laughs> and you, you, you sort of take it out and say, all right, I've got a bit of this and I've got a bit of that, I'm, I'm sorted. But nowadays, you like, you got your phone and it's like, Endless. oh, I really want to listen to Crush by Jennifer Page. <laughs> there it is. And you just pull it out. Yeah. <laughs> do you think you listen? I think you listen in a very different way now. Mm, I mean, totally. You know, my nieces and nephews, they only listen to, like, 40 seconds or something, yep. you know. So, um, and, and I think uh, it's a shame, in a way, that, that... Well, when I go back to listen to old music, which I heard first on, on vinyl, you know, um, the, uh, to be able to stop it halfway through... When you did that with vinyl, it was a really physical thing, and it was almost yeah. like an offence. You could hear the artist, like, screaming, what the fuck are you doing, you know, taking the needle off halfway through. You know, that was a... That was an act, but now you just yeah. segue and um, and uh, and I. But at the same time, I, it's amazing how I can talk to you know my family, my young family about this, and they they've heard all his stuff, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, which you and I mean about CDs, I mean, I used to have to save up for albums. I mean, mm. you, your access to stuff was so limited then because, and then you really studied it and, you know, you would look at it, yeah. well, I would look at an album sleeve and, look, and absolutely yeah. and look at the typeface. Yeah. You know, everything was a, like Study some it. clue yeah. to yeah. style, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, and that's where you got... That was that was the source of everything, sure. really. And the and the contrast to that is something like Girl Talk, or the Yacht Club mm. DJs. Oh, yes. And yeah. for those of you who don't know that, um, if you imagine a mixed CD made up entirely of the choruses of top forty hits, 
Like they've just <laughs> eliminate the verses. It's just Amazing. from chorus to chorus Amazing. to chorus to chorus. It's just like yeah. full. It would be the equivalent of a blockbuster movie, which is just three hours of explosions. <laughs> <laughs> um, something I really want to ask all of you, and as a music writer, it's something that I find really excruciating. And I just thought, is there something wrong with me, or do other people have this problem too? Is when you're really close to an artist's work and you love it so much and it means so much to you, for some reason it's harder sometimes writing about them. Mm. Is that something you've found? Yeah. I, mean, I missed a deadline the other day because I just sat there <laughs> looking at my screen and I thought, I've got to start, but yeah. I don't want to do a bad job. I, don't, um, I want to do it justice. Um, and I just sat there. <laughs> I, I really love it because I think it's a body thing. You know how yeah. there's boundaries like this everything outside of my skin and then there's everything inside of my skin yeah. that oh that sounds narcissistic but I'm um, like <laughs> but you know like that you know and I think that often there's a song that just makes a noise inside of me and I just I just have no idea and that's what I love it's like I really like about writing about the completely intangible you know like it's not intangible that's not the right word but the you know the thing that there is no word for you know like um you know like it just yeah, I just, I just love the way music cuts through everything and just seems to go, it's like, it's like mainlining emotion or something, mm -hmm. like it just, and then, and I think it's a real body thing, you know, and especially talking, I love talking to David about music, like it, it's very sort of lizard brain, you know, like my body thinks we're gonna go here, my body thinks that the next thing that's gonna happen is a rabbit's gonna jump out, you know, like, and I just, I just think, it, I don't know, oh, now I'm saying it's primal, wow, cliche woman, but I just think, I just think that that's where I think it gets difficult, I don't know, what yeah. but you wrote about someone who you freaking love in such so close beautiful. to, yeah, yeah, such elegant way. But I don't know whether I did, and I think it's very, very difficult. Um, I, back in, 1999 now, I curated an exhibition, co-curated an exhibition in the National Portrait Gallery in London called Icons of Pop, where I used sort of like 50 years of pop photography. Uh, and I was working through the curator of photography there, uh, Terence Pepper. Uh, and when I, I, I wrote the catalogue, and he said, you write much better about artists that you don't really love. Do you? <laughs> and that was really interesting, and I think that's quite interesting, because to be, yeah. you know, because if you love something, you just, there's so much I want to get out, and you know, and you, it's just, you know. But I start, my writing career began writing about music. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my first published stuff was the, with the fanzines I published mm. in, you know, punk times, you know, like Xerox stuff, you know, um, uh, which was really exciting. When you go back to that, that's completely, and it wasn't even, t I didn't have a typewriter, so I was writing it hand, yeah. you know. Uh, and that, that, because, and that, was such a physical response to punk because, you know, I was seeing these bands and there was no difference between yourself and the band, you know. So if you would see the damned, I mean, I used to get up and sing with them, you know, and like, you know, and you'd see the clash and all these things in tiny, tiny rooms, you know. And so the kind of the writing was just like, it's like the speed you'd snorted, you know. It was like, it was so, it was really part of that culture to to respond in that way. Immediacy um, and in the moment. Very immediate, very immediate. And, and then when I, the first things I had published was when I was writing reviews of bands I was managing <laughs> under a different name. Yeah, that's very punk, isn't it? That's very punk rock. because yeah. I invented, but, and I, yeah, I invented the name and I published it. You know, so, so yeah, you know. Cause what it's, was your um, yeah, punk what name? Was your name? <laughs> My punk name was P. Moore. P. Moore. 
because um, anyway, so but I mean, it's a really bad name, but um, but um, but yes, so so uh, uh, yeah, and I, I, it's, it's still, and I think music journalism is when it's brilliant. It's, mm. I mean, it's mm. just brilliant, and you know, somebody. I mean, I, obviously, I, my period was that, and I, we had some great writers mm. come out of that, and it's you know, like Grail Marcus or John mm. Savage. Um, Tony Parsons, even those Mike, people. Michael Bracewell's written really well about your. He's really Bowie. good friend of mine, and yeah. Uh, do you think it has changed things where a lot of music reviewing is now online, yeah. and so you can embed the track or the album that you're actually yes. writing about, so people can listen? Yes. How's that changed things? Whereas before, you know, you had to. I mean, if you're in New Zealand mm. and you were reading stuff, <laughs> you had to send away for the import, yeah. and it would and come it, yeah. by boat, yeah. and, and it, it may not sound anything like what you expect it to like, sound. God, I think all those, uh, I don't know, the, the, the hard, co hard um, copy NME, you know, there's all those adverts in the back and things. Because so you used to look for all the, you know, you used to have to buy your indie stuff from there. So yeah. even in the UK, you know, we had to wait, you know. Because if you didn't have a local record shop that sold it, you know. So to, and, you know, there'd be only a 2,000 pressing of some things, you know, and they'd all go. So, I mean, I like that, that you know, it's... I wish, actually, you know, that's kind of self-destruct thing that you have with some, some, you know, I th that's you know, music is made to self-destruct in a way. Some of that music was made. I mean, it's, you know, it's. Uh... I, I think a lot of dance music is made to self-destruct in that <laughs> yeah, same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, disposable is not the right word, but no. it, it, it's of a moment. It's, yeah. it is a physical, visceral thing, and I mean, it was in some ways one of the reasons that moved me on from that scene when I did. Um, I guess I, I worked as a graphic designer and went to a lot of dance parties and then there was a point at which my brain just kind of turned to custard. <laughs> I became interested in content yeah. um, and wanted to kind of move on past that. Um, but I think, it, I, I guess it's about what, the, what you go to the music for. Mm. And, and there are things that I will put on headphones and listen to mm. or actually I... I had a real job for a while there and actually bought a really good sound system. And so, yeah, to actually put on an album and listen to an album and just immerse myself in that. Um, and obviously, I'm not putting on dubstep when I'm doing that. Yeah. Um, You're putting on Trevor Horn or yeah, something. Or yeah. Whatever I can get my hands on at yeah, the time. Yeah. But um, I still do go to that kind of music at times when I do want an, a, a momentum, an energy, a mood. Uh, you know, when I'm thinking about the end the end point of this process is to get a piece of writing on the page, mm -hmm. and I want to channel an emotion, and I want to use the music for that. So I guess it's curating your listening around the writing output and thinking about you know, the rhythm of the words. I mean, what you were saying about how you don't have to say, I'm still swimming. Mm, you can, yeah, you yeah, can just yeah. use the language itself to do that, yeah. and I find that there is a real rhythm that comes through in the writing, depending on what you're listening to. Probably got time for one more question, but dancing about architecture—that's the um, the whole gist of this whole thing. And it was the saying. We're actually going to finish with a, an interpretive dance about. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, yeah, that wasn't meant to be a surprise. <laughs> sorry. Never <laughs> <laughs> yeah, been so frightened. Uh, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Dancing about architecture for years, I thought Elvis Costello was the man behind that quote. And then it wasn't, it was Martin Mull, the actor and comedian, although it's been attributed to a whole bunch of different people. I've heard it, I've heard Miles Davis behind it. Yeah, yeah, but um, anyway. But I guess the saying about that, you know, it's dancing about architecture. Writing about music is like dancing about mm. architecture. It's a pointless thing mm. to want to do. Who would want to do it? And sometimes I sit down and think, what am I doing? And 
this is crazy, it's such a weird thing to do, and it's because music is such a, I just want to ask you, do you think it's because music is such an ephemeral thing? How do you distill that in words? I think is it goes what, what? back to Nick's point about being mm. able to embed um, clips into online reviews and stuff, because people can just instantly sort of draw that connection. Yeah. Mm. Now, if they, you, know, you, you read a description of a song and then you can click play, it's like, oh, I see what they're doing. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't think writing about music is pointless at all because no, that's no. how I discovered a lot of yeah. the music and artists that I love, especially if it was in interviews where they were asked, you know, who do you listen to, what do you like? And that's how I sort of just keep... It sets forth yeah. a trail of discovering yeah. more. Yeah, and it might things. not have been what I expected, but I'm glad that I went and mm. sorted it out. Because yeah. the alternative is trusting your music choice to algorithms. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is really spooky how that happens yeah, I think these days. anything that will break writing is very useful yeah. you know what I mean and I think that trying to it's that is it it's kind of that entropy thing you know it's trying to do something that you can't do it's it's like thinking about God you know what I mean like it's um you know, like, I think that is so useful for us as writers to sort of be writing, to be trying to do something that can't be done. I just, yeah, I'm all for it. I love it, yeah. And I think, you know, if you're, it's also, I mean, say music is ephemeral, but it's also the most long-lasting thing mm. because yeah. the sense of sound is the, your last sense that you possess, you know. The, that's right, you that's you're dying on your deathbed, that's the last thing you... Think, uh, leave is sound, and um, so I think in writing, it acts, you know, using music, even just references, referencing lyrics and stuff, it acts as a kind of hyperlink, it sort of like, yeah. takes you straight through, so there's a, it's a kind of shorthand, um, and it does speak to, like, so when my book came out, I just tweeted the image and I put, it fucks with the fabric of time on Twitter, <laughs> and someone tweeted back, said, what does? I said, you're not the person for that book. <laughs> 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 uh, well, that's Please fine, explain. that's fine. But yeah, yeah. but you know, because there are, the thing about music, it's a codifying thing, you know, and the sense of identity, there's it, it, a sense, because we share this, and, and it's so great, actually, the premise of this morning's thing is, is really wonderful, because we're sharing this with a group of people, and I'm looking at all of you, and of course, I'm thinking, so will he get it? Will she get it? Oh, she's got it. Oh, he's definitely <laughs> got it. You know, and it's so, in a way, music is an exclusive thing. It, 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 you know, you become, it's tribal and everything, but within that tribe, it's very inclusive. Mm. Um, and there's always the possibility of everyone else being included because, like what he did, you know, he like reached out and said, give me a hand because you're wonderful. That is the most marvelous thing, and mm. that's that's it's a saving grace of music. Music can save you. Mm. Can. Thank you to our four wonderful writers. Um, all of their books are available for sale at the bookstall out there, thanks to our friends at UBS. Except for the novel of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not available. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. That will never be available. But thank you so thanks, much. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, thank you, Karen.